I'd like to convene our rum table or our oblong table, um, if I could. Um, I'm Claire McEachern. I'm a professor in the English department, and I'd like to welcome you today to the roundtable discussion on comparative environmentalisms. Uh, this discussion serves as the concluding event of the Mellon Lecture Series on the Cultural Prehistory of Environmentalism, um, which was imagined by Liz Lowry, Robert Watson, and myself um, with the intention of uh, sort of understanding or thinking about the cultural understandings of the natural world. Um, before proceeding, I'd like to thank the most essential member of our team, who's the graduate coordinator, Amanda Waldo, um, who's been indefatigable <laughs> in publicizing our series, taking care of its business, and all importantly, organizing the low-carbon footprint receptions, okay, which has been no small feat. Today's speakers approach environmental studies from various perspectives and disciplines. They will each speak, I believe, for about 10 minutes um, about their own work and then hopefully move into a general discussion focused on three questions. How do history and culture bear on the environmental present? Secondly, what are the promises and pitfalls of ecocritical and environmental study? And thirdly, where do they see the field or their part of the field headed? First, whoever, let me introduce them, which in the interest of time will not be justice to their many accomplishments. And I believe we'll go in alphabetical order, both in my introduction and in our, our speaking, if that's okay. First will be Liz DeLowry, Elizabeth DeLowry. She's an associate professor of English at UCLA. She's the author of Roots and Roots, Navigating Caribbean and Pacific Island Literature, 2007, and co-editor of Caribbean Literature and the Environment Between Nature and Culture, 2005, and also with George Handley, editing an essay collection forthcoming this year from Oxford titled Post-Colonial Ecologies, Literatures of the Environment. And she's completing a manuscript about plants and empire in the post-colonial island tropics. Susanna Hecht is a professor of urban planning at UCLA who works, I think, not on the urban jungle, but real ones, chiefly the Amazon, in particular questions of tropical development in both the past and the present. She is one of the founders of the approach known as political ecology and co-author of the prize-winning Fate of the Forest, Developers, Destroyers, and Defenders of the Amazon. Her most recent book is Euclides de Cunas, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. De Cunha. De Cunha. Tropical Odyssey in the Amazonian Scramble, forthcoming from the University of Chicago Press. Um, Carolyn Ford is a professor of European history at UCLA. Everyone's from UCLA. Um, she's the author of two books and is working on a third which focuses on the transformation of environmental sensibilities in France and her colonies from the 1860s to World War II. Recent articles include Nature, Culture, and Con Conservation in France and Her Colonies, published in Past and Present, Nature's Fortunes, New Directions in the Writing of European Environmental History, published in the Journal of Modern History, Reforestation, Landscape, Conservation, and Anxieties of Empire in French Colonial Algeria, published in the American Historical Review, which won the 2009 William Corrin Jr. Prize. And our last um, member of the team is Robert N. Watson, who's Professor of English at UCLA, as well as Associate Vice Provost for Educational Innovation and Chair of the Honors Program, Fiat Lux Seminars, and Writing Two Programs. His many books address a range of topics in early modern culture, from horsemanship to death, the book which brings him to our subject today is Back to Nature, The Green and the Real in the Late Renaissance, which in 2007 received prizes for the best environmentalist study of literature and the best book in the Renaissance. Please join me in welcoming our panelists. Thank you. Will you give me a nine-minute warning? A nine-minute warning. Yes, a nine-minute. I mean, nine not, not a one-minute one. Minute. Um, <laughs> 
a little us away and see all this. So um, thanks everyone for coming. Uh, one of the, um, I think the things that I love about UCLA is um, the diversity of research on this campus um, and it's a really a great opportunity to get people together to talk about those of us who are working in the environment from different perspectives. Um, so I'll just talk a bit about uh, the book that I've been working on for the past few years, um, which is called Tropics of Globalization. Um, it takes a look at contemporary literature of the post-colonial island tropics, uh, particularly the Caribbean and the Pacific Islands. Um, to look at the way that diaspora, which is literally the spreading of seeds, is represented both in terms of plant distribution and in human distribution, particularly its literary representation, but also its visual. Um, so in order to kind of manage this material, I, I'm focusing on three figures of nature. The first is the coconut, um, which is a kind of uh, natural traveler. It travels on its own. You don't need to bring it anywhere because it's in its kind of perfectly portable uh, uh, shell. Um, and look at how it became an important war material in the 20th century. Um, and the means by which nuclear irradiation was measured in the Marshall Islands. So I look at the kind of travel of the, of the coconut, not only just in terms of sustaining um, ship, uh, ship communities across the Pacific, right, because it's portable water, uh, but also the way in which its charcoal was used in World War I um, as fur gas masks, and that created a whole um, uh, interest in, in cooking the coconut in the U.S. Um, the second figure is the breadfruit, which is famously exchanged in the 18th century from Tahiti to the Caribbean, um, through which we all know the story, of the, or have heard of the story of the mutiny on the bounty, right? And that becomes a kind of major figure for this trans, uh, transfer. Um, and uh, it became an icon of food without labor in the Pacific, the idea that you just kind of reach to the tree and your food would be immediately available, but also a plant that maintained the slavery in the Caribbean, so I'll talk a bit about that. And then the third figure is the yam, a root tuber brought across the Middle Passage by Africans and an important symbol of roots culture um, in the um, uh, slave provision grounds in the Caribbean. So overall, my project is designed to think through the long history of plant exchange, to kind of think through another model of globalization in which our landscapes have been radically changed, particularly since the 18th century, um, to look at nature and violence, or the representation of nature and violence, and to position the history and writing of tropical islands as central rather than peripheral to, the, um, uh, to globalization. So I'm moving against these kind of images of islands that we have here. Um, the idea of the tropical island as a paradise, which is another way of saying they're both outside of modernity and they're both outside of history. So these are the two kind of things that I'm moving against. Um, oh, that's not the one that's supposed to be there. Let's see. I think my map has disappeared. I had this map on this um, file which looked at the resources of the Commonwealth here. Let me see if I can get this one. Okay. Um, this represent, so the representation of island paradise seems to erase the material ways in which colonies supported the British metropole and the ways in which the process of what Alfred Crosby calls ecological imperialism uh, radically altered the diets and landscapes of the globe in which cultivars such as the potato, for instance, doubled the population of parts of Asia, Africa, um, and Europe. So this idea of the kind of plants on the move, which I like especially with this image of the pineapple, um, which kind of makes it look like it has its own legs, and also the idea of the kind of mobility of the ship. These are the kind of ways I want to think through this idea that you know the, the objects that seem the most rooted in the earth are actually in traveling and complex um, uh, material um, routes and exchange. Um, and also I want to think about how these foods are naturalized in other spaces of the world, and particularly when you think of this representation of this woman carrying a pineapple in Tahiti, but the pineapple is a Caribbean, um, you know, indigenous to the Caribbean. So no, the way in it's which indigenous to the upper Amazon. 
It's indigenous to my area. It was domesticated. I, it was. Yeah. Pineapple two, fight. Pineapple uh, fight. <laughs> <laughs> wait, but, wait. Territorial battle. But it came through the Caribbean. Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. No, it came no, through no, the I'm, Caribbean. I'm but it's not from the Pacific. And this idea of the kind of Pacific, you know, tropics and all that. But it was part of the Arawak diaspora. <laughs> it was. That's true. And, and it's from the Arawak language too. You'll so hear more okay. So we'll 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 get into debates on um, the actual. And I also don't. I also want to destabilize this idea of origins too. I don't want to have a fixed idea of origins either. But I also want to point out the way in which these landscapes become kind of merged into each other. Um, so, and also the idea of the kind of island fertility and femininity, which is obviously represented in this uh, context. Um, and so while theorists of uh, kind of recent forms of late capitalism have talked about the way globalization manifests itself in a kind of space-time compression, you know, the way that David Harvey and others have spoken about it, and the kind of jumbling of these diverse spaces or kind of heterotopias, if you want to use Foucault, um, we can see that even just looking at the tra trajectories of empire that this process has a long and deep history, particularly the, um, the representation here between London and the kind of industrialization of London in this image, and then the cocoa, right, and the way that these two kind of landscapes uh, were brought together. And the racialization of these landscapes, right? So the way in which um, commodities um, in consuming the products and the labor of the global south and how that's an important part of this history as well. Um, tied to what uh, Cynthia Enloe, if you read her work, she looks at the way that the banana became naturalized into the American diet through uh, the U.S. military. Um, so it's kind of look through the domestication of tropical products and the kind of naturalization of them in northern climates. Um, and their, um, both their uh, feminization and also their sexualization, which is parodied in this um, image of Chiquita. Um, uh, this is a contemporary artist parodying this, this idea. I had to bring in this image. I, I had to bring it in. Um, yeah, yeah, actually we could, we could maybe talk about the, the Chiquita phallus as well. Um, so, and the reason this came about is that I came back from one of my research trips and I had pictures of, um, I wasn't sure if it was Jamaica or, um, or Fiji, but both of them had representations of the breadfruit in it. And looking at the kind of palm fern and the, and the breadfruit and mango in this picture, I couldn't figure out actually what place the picture had been taken. And I started that raised a question as to what, what is it that I'm on two different parts of the world, but yet these kind of landscapes were so familiar. So this led to this whole kind of question about the breadfruit and its role, which we know through the Mutiny on the Bounty, Marlon Brando's um, version, and then the more recent version with Mel Gibson and Anthony Hopkins, which stages the story in terms of a, a debate or a fight or a mutiny between two British men, right? And so for me, the kind of larger question um, is about the kind of process of cultivation, uh, the kind of work that the, that the, the Tahitians did in cultivating the breadfruit, number one, to make it seedless, right, which is it is in Tahiti versus other areas of the Pacific where it's not. Um, but also the kind of six months of preparation that they took in order to prepare hundreds of seedlings to ship over into the Caribbean. Um, and when it got to the Caribbean, the slaves refused to eat it. So it's this whole kind of question about the way, you know, the tremendous lengths of 20 years of them working in the 18th century just to get this crop over into the Caribbean, um, and then the kind of refusal to ingest this. Um, so it seems to me raise these kind of questions about why British planters wanted to draw from the farthest reaches of the empire, um, a trip that would take nearly two years to complete, um, this is uh, half of Bly's root. Um, to obtain this specific fruit, when plenty of other varieties, such as the jackfruit and other kind of starchy vegetables, were readily available. So, by looking at the um, uh, 18th century correspondence of planters and tracing breadfruit into the contemporary Caribbean cookbooks, I've traced out how this tree became associated with sustenance without labor, right? Which, as I mentioned, this idea of kind of um, picking it from the tree without having to work for it. And how its association with bread kind it became this, this idea of kind of giving bread to the poor um, allowed it to function as a means to give 
um, bread to people who were revolting in order to quell the slave rebellions as well as the French rebellion. So it became this kind of symbol of bread as a way, as a panacea for a revolution in the 18th century. So, and this is one of the images of transporting the um, breadfruit in these cages, which is quite interesting. Um, so tracing out the history of these food crops and the great lengths, uh, the British Society and other groups went to reformulate the space of the globe through their network of botanical gardens and islands across the world, and Richard Grove has written extensively on that in his book, Green Imperialism. Um, suggests a radical shift in our understanding of place and commodities and foods that constitute our historical and our current bodies. Here in Archimboldo's late 16th century portrait, we see the subject composed mostly of old world, old world vegetables, except you'll notice that his ear, that's, if you can see it just behind a little bit of wheat here, is actually made out of new world corn. New world. <laughs> no, I'm going to check the expert here. Ecuador, um, 6,000 years. Before. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, so already you see the kind of both representation of the body, but also the, you know, the foods of the body are, are shifting in this. So in this one, this image, which I came across in a 1976 version of Nutrition Today, we have the representation. They turned back to Bly, and they called him the Johnny Appleseed, uh, represented him as the Johnny Appleseed of, of America, even though he never went to Northern America. Um, in this way that this becomes articulated as a kind of founding a national or patriarchal hero, um, and also kind of, and the way that these trees, there's a, there's a tree in St. Vincent that said this was a tree from Bly, and so there's a whole kind of patriarchal genealogy associated with this. But this guy, um, unlike Archimboldo, his hat is made, he's made out of New World products. So his hat is tobacco, um, you have uh, coconut, Oh wow! One minute. Okay, um, you have. Uh, he's made up of uh, tea, coffee, lime, mango, orange, almond, breadfruit, et cetera, et cetera. So he's all these kind of fruits of the tropics that he's put together. Um, and then uh, this is another image. Oh, my chapter on the yam, which I'm only going to mention just briefly. I want to turn to the spaces outside the plantation complex to examine the slave provision grounds, uh, which are the spaces in which African and indigenous cultivars were grown and became a vital part of the uh, Caribbean markets, allowing some slaves to make enough money to buy their freedom. It's these alternative spaces of the recent, that recent Caribbean writers are now turning to in order to pose a model of creolization that is not overdetermined by the plantocracy and a way of articulating roots culture, uh, quote unquote, as seen as this representation of Ital Man. Um, so this is another aspect of it in terms of kind of shifting away from the sugar plantation, which has traditionally been the model of creolization and, and Caribbean history, to kind of think about these alternative spaces. Um, so, and just in sum, uh, this is a kind of, uh, uh, well, I can talk about this during the discussion, but it's, I want to see, um, uh, in, uh, ideally, in terms of where the field is, is le uh, leading, I'd like to see environmental studies shift from its um, dominant concern with Euro-American wilderness and pastoral areas, which is one of the major uh, discourses, particularly in literature, um, in order to think in critical and historical ways about how uh, the histories of empire um, have already kind of denaturalized those spaces uh, to begin with and radically changed both Earth and our bodies. Um, and how these exchanges were um, and are mutually constitutive to engage a more kind of uh, global, uh, global-oriented global ethic and thinking through the ways in which colonialism and also militarism, which I can talk about uh, after discussion period have shaped uh, both social and environmental relations. So in, the, in, the, in my the book, I turned to this image as kind of one of the ways of thinking through that kind of merger of the kind of natural and also um, um, uh, the historical. Um, okay, so I'll leave it at that. Alphabetically. Am I next? Yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. Okay, um, I'm not actually trained as an environmental historian. Um, the field was in its infancy, really, when I was in graduate school. 
um, particularly with respect to um, European environmental history, and at least in this country, um, environmental history is by and large actually dominated by American historians, um, who, and uh, there are a number of um, figures that really occupy these places, such as William Cronin, um, Changes in the Land, um, work on the Dust Bowl, um, and so forth. And frequently when you read um, historiographical essays on environmental history, um, it's, the claim is frequently made that um, the American school was really at the forefront of developing um, this sub-discipline within um, history. I'm uh, primarily a historian of uh, France and also of Europe, and who has also worked in an area uh, of rural history, which is an important part of the, um, and has traditionally has been an important part of the Annal School uh, tradition, uh, especially regional studies. And um, by and large, um, the Annal School actually was a very important precursor of the American historian's claims um, um, notwithstanding. Uh, to the field of environmental, this self-designated field of environmental history. And one need merely think of the historical works um, of Fernand Brodel, his work on the Mediterranean in the age of Philip II, or Lucien Febvre and Demangeon, um, 1935, History of the Rhine River in Germany. Um, my work... Um, in this particular area is focused really on um, perceptions. Um, it's frequently said that the divide between European historians and Americans is that American historians work on dirt and uh, European historians are more interested in perceptions of dirt. And uh, I guess I would fit within that uh, general rubric. And what I'm interested in really is um, the transformation in environmental sensibilities in France from the mid to late uh, 19th century um, into the 20th century up to um, World War II. And when I say transformation in environmental sensibilities, um, what I'm talking about is um, its reflection in specific measures and le legislation that was, that was taken by the French both in France and also in um, France's colonial empire to um, manage and protect the landscape. And I start in the 1860s because it was in the 1860s that for the first time the French state passes uh, legislation to protect a natural site, um, which turns out to be the Forest of Fontainebleau. And it's the Barbizon School of Painters who actually are behind the initiative. And the initiative doesn't come out really of an, what we would identify as an ecological concern, but out of an aesthetic concern and also a, a historical concern. And this landscape was particularly important and particularly valued because of its historical associations and because of its picturesque quality. And then after that, a whole series of organizations begin to be formed in France, uh, the Society for the um, Friends of Trees, uh, the Society for the Protection of Landscapes of France, uh, the Alpine Club, all uh, that are in some, some form or another engaged in this kind of project. And so I, what I'm trying to really sort out and understand is um, the nature of this project and where it comes from and where this 
this uh, particular environmental um, consciousness um, where the landscapes in which it is it's actually applied. And so I'm working on a period that, in essence, um, historians of France generally don't work on. Um, most of the sort of work in environmental history so defined starts quite late in the, in the 1970s. And it, a lot of the work is, surrounds the creation of the, the Ministry of the Environment and the various Green Parties. But I think this is really a crucial period um, that we have to really take apart and understand. And the other thing that has always fascinated me um, in working in French history is, is this um, kind of obsessive uh, French attachment to the land, which is reflected in um, militant protection of agricultural in, um, um, interests vis-à-vis -vis the European Union and also the United States and various kinds of trade wars. And, and you know, I, I want to provide a certain historical perspective on that. And then I was also struck by the marked contrast um, in certain kinds of environmental attitudes between North America and France, and specifically the notion of wilderness, which you referred to. Um, in the French con context, you really don't have that that particular um, that particular con uh, sort of um, context, um, and in essence. There is less of, an, of, of a sort of uh, nature-culture divide, um, which uh, very much interests me. Um, where landscapes and the environment uh, that are valued and protected are not so much because of their wild nature, but because, as in the case of Fontainebleau, their historical associations. And so I want to <coughs> try to sort out and explain why that was so as well. And um, I'm also interested in the historical roots of a particular kind of environmentalism. And that's why I think it's important to um, think about place. I mean, where you're talking about, whether you're talking about um, your tropical islands, or um, you're talking about Europe, or um, you're talking about um, a colonial uh, context. And so, again, uh, France, France's environmentalism really didn't come out of a, of a kind of ecology, but other kinds of concerns, and I think it's important to really look at those epistemological roots um, in, in this regard. Um, and this really leads me to, uh, I started out the project actually working on metropolitan France, and I realized very quickly that you couldn't do that, that you, have to, you had to look at the dynamic between uh, colonies and um, metropolitan France, because actually um, uh, environmentalism was played out very, very differently. If you go, for example, across the Mediterranean to North Africa, to the Maghreb, and, and I can't deal with the entire, uh, France's entire empire, but what I'm focusing on really is Madagascar um, and the Maghreb. Um, and I'm particularly interested in the uh, Maghreb and in North Africa um, for the kinds of um, assumptions that the French brought to that landscape, and also the, both the historical assumptions and the myths, and I'll, and I'll call them that, myths. And the article that um, I wrote last year on um, reforestation and anxieties of empire in the Maghreb really concerns um, the French concern with obsession, really, with deforestation in that French colony. Um, because they had a whole declensionist 
um, environmental environmental narrative regarding the region. Um, and the, the narrative runs something like this, that um, essentially um, the the Maghreb was a land of milk and honey. It was covered with forests. And actually, this comes out in Brodel's The Mediterranean. Um, and what happened is that the um, during the time of the Roman Empire, this was a this this land was you know a land filled with wheat fields, etc., etc., um, wine, um, grape growing, and so on and so forth. And then you had the Arab invasions of the 11th century and then it was turned into a desert. And the French had this kind of narrative that they were there really to restore this original landscape, which was a Mediterranean landscape that was actually um, being threatened by the encroachment of the Sahara. And it set off a whole, and essentially also it, it's a kind of um, ideology that legitimated um, uh, the colonial rule in the region that the sort of local indigenous uh, population were not the proper steward, stewards of the land. And so um, this is just an example of that, but um, obviously what you find in metropolitan France is going to be extremely different, and one has to look at the different sorts of environmental uh, narratives, and that there's no kind of linear, necessarily progressive pattern either um, to environmentalism or um, environmental kinds of um, ideology. So getting to the questions that, that um, Claire uh, wanted us to pose, well, I think I've spoken to the question of history and culture and how that bears on the environmental um, uh, present, and we could talk a bit more about this. In terms of the uh, pitfalls and promises of environmental study, I think um, what is important is actually doing what we're doing here, which is really thinking comparatively and not uh, thinking in terms of North America, Europe, but really uh, talking across these these various um, uh, areas. And in terms of where the field is headed, I mean, the way where I see it's headed is actually, you know, working as you said, you know, beyond uh, North America and Europe, and really trying to see the interconnections, um, and that's very much what I'm interested in. Thank you. Susanna? Okay. Um, I actually sort of, uh, since we're talking about colonialism, I will be talking about a colonial power that isn't normally thought of as one, which is Brazil. And uh, if we're going to speak about places that are archetypically tropical, what could be more tropical, and feminist, what could be more tropical than the Amazon? Um, so what I'm going to do actually in this is sort of talk about from really a, a perspective that moves from historical ecology to political ecology and actually in my presentations I'm going to take my little story from the deep past into the uh, modern era of globalization in the turn of the century and then the implications for the current time. So I'm going to try and answer these questions, these brilliant questions posed by Bob that we all sort of said uh, when we read them, and um, uh, try and do them through this thing. So I'm going to be talking about three things, um, and uh, I do start with dirt, um, which is the Terra Preta do Indio of, uh, of the Amazon. And then I'm going to talk about two, uh, the question of domestication and our understandings of domestication, um, hence my 
chirping up there when the Caribbean was claimed. Um, but also in that, I want to talk about another diaspora, which is the famous Arawak diaspora, which of course you're all familiar with, because who wouldn't be? But actually you are familiar with the, the, the Arawak diaspora under another guise. And then finally, I want to talk about the rubber period. And since you cannot have modernity, the Industrial Revolution depended on steel, energy, and rubber. And you could not have the modern world without rubber. I think it's useful to talk a little bit, not just about the questions of food plants, which are extremely important, but also about industrial plants, particularly as we move into a world in which um, things like um, um, uh, uh, energy sources and so on are under question as being grown rather than merely dug out of the ground. So. One of the things that I think is very interesting about doing historical work is the old cliche, the past is another country, but also other countries are another country. So going into the past in another country is sort of squaring, perhaps, uh, the, the past, the, the, the questions of how your epistemes and mythologies vary. Um, the other thing is that environmentalisms in these places are very different, as you point out, from the Anglo-American ideologies of environmentalism and actually embrace in many ways inhabited environments. So uh, uh, these other kinds of cosmovisions, if you will, uh, infuse places and actually can be can provide quite interesting insights about both uh, the past and the present and the future. So um, one of the things I want to talk about is what are called the Terra Preta do Indio. These are anthropogenic soils. They are seem to be quite characteristic of the Arawak group. The Arawak also travel under other names as Caribs, and hence um, have, a, have a straight line. They're all over the place, basically. They're all at the edges of the Amazon, um, as are the Terra Pretas. And uh, they also, for those who follow these things, are, appear to have originated the game of soccer. Um, uh, which, you know, some might find this an interesting thing. And it's interesting to me because, of course, it has to do with the question of rubber, which I'll get to in a minute. But um, what the Terra Preta do Indio is basically to tropical soils and tropical landscapes in the Amazon what irrigation is to arid soils and what terracing is to mountainous places. So it's one of the things that... Um, permits the development of intensive agriculture at reasonably large scales and the emergence of civilizations when they need to have surpluses. So it's a very important element in uh, thinking about tropical places as a habitus for man and a site for the development of complex civilizations. For much of the past century and before, Humid tropical environments were taken as places that couldn't really develop very complex societies because the soils were so crummy. And so you had these nomadic people who sort of ran around and painted themselves red and never really developed culturally. And um, that's why the forests were so big and that, you know, the forests couldn't really, you know, it was this sort of narrative of the primitive and um, the wild, which actually kind of ratified North American views and also coincided with certain kinds of uh, uh, ecological ideas and also the Malthusian turn in 
certainly American uh, environmentalism. But what is very interesting about this is that it is a practice that um, is uh, replicable. And actually, uh, a colleague of me and mine and myself were documented how it was produced by Kayapo Indian um, cultivators, and now it goes under the name of biochar. Well, what it did, what looking at this did, uh, which was to sort of say, good heavens, <laughs> they seem to be burning all the time here, and the soils don't seem to be crappy at all, um, was that it essentially allowed a shift in the archaeological literature to rethinking the possibilities of complex cultures. That is the key. So all of a sudden people began to do large-scale mapping and so on and then sort of discovered that, you know, the 10,000 year BC beautiful uh, pottery was not something that somehow come down from Inca or Andean cultures but was autochthonous to the Amazon basin and that rather being a, a periphery at the ed edges of civilization, it was indeed the hearth of it. If we move this question from sort of its analytic things, uh, which are interesting on their own, and its historical contributions <coughs> to the reimagination of Amazonia, it also has important contemporary uh, implications for tropical development today, which is that this isn't that complicated a technique to produce, um, and it's being reproduced and tested now for uh, peasant production systems. But also at a sort of different level, um, they've been important for casting as, as an alternative or as a technique, and is about to be ratified by the EU, as a method for storing um, CO2 in this um, uh, hyperpyrolytic char. That is, there are lots of residues that are produced in agricultural processes and forest processes. And if you don't do anything, they sort of evaporate and go into the air. Um, and part of what they, in this evaporation, these carbon-based, their carbon-based bodies mm. go off of CO2. What biochar does is essentially, it takes about 50% of that carbon and stores it in an extremely stable form. So if you do biochar, you get the double exposure of having improved soil properties and storing CO2. So what could be better? Um, so this is one kind of thing of where something that goes from the deep past, and it is the deep past, it's the Arawakian, it's the wacky Arawakian diaspora that uh, actually is probably extends from, uh, we know we have Terra Preta in, uh, in, in Costa Rica and in southern Mexico, and it extends all the way down to Argentina. So we have actually uh, evidence of this technique, at least, that goes very widely. And it's important to understand, too, that civilizations also had, non-Western civilizations had extensive diasporas that went along with their cultures. The problem, of course, with the Arawak diaspora was the problem of you know, the human uh, New World diseases. But since we're uh, in the world, the realm of rubber, um, one, and I was triggered into that world by a text, which is that of Euclides da Cunha, the Brazilian writer who is also an environmental historian of his own time, and also a historian, although it wasn't really clear, um, of an Amazon scramble, a scramble that is, has its analogs in the New World to the African scramble in the Old World. And what was driving the scramble, however, of, uh, besides European politics, 
was the uh, occurrence of the most important product in the world at the time, which was um, uh, rubber. And um, of course, one of the things that's important to realize is that while foods traveled, of course, things like quine, there was a great deal of uh, biopiracy of tree crops. Coffee, of course, is, is one. Um, uh, cacao is another, but quinine is one. And of course, the famous biopiracy of rubber is another. But one of the things that was uh, constantly brought to my attention in doing this work was this idea that everyone in the tropics was always doing wild gathering. And it, because uh, rubber was taken only to have been domesticated at Kew and by Salonese uh, British planters or Anglo-Irish planters, the question of the possibility, in the same way that soils couldn't be manipulated, there seems to have been this idea that trees couldn't have been manipulated. And so one of the things that's been emerging from this work has been looking at, this is why I, char I charged at you when you said pineapples, because in essence there is this Vavilov Center, that is a center for domesticated biodiversity in the upper Amazon that contains an extraordinary amount of things that we take for granted, um, and uh, among them pineapples, but there are many tree crops, uh, the most uh, uh, cacao being one, um, uh, caucho, which is another source of castilla, uh, another source of rubber and rubber trees as well, as well as many kinds of fruit trees and things that we all love like um, runner beans, tomatoes, peanuts, you know, things like that. So there's a really major place and it's really characteristic for, it's got a lot of um, uh, tree crops that appear to be domesticated, but we don't have a model for domestication there. And the reason we don't have a model is because our version of domestication involves making sure that the plant cannot survive. Domestication implies that the plant um, is a thing that happens to a plant. And the second thing is that one of the characteristic markers is that it cannot persist in nature without unaided, uh, without human intervention. In fact, what we see emerging from ethnographic studies there and uh, other kinds of things is that actually we have a kind of society of nature and that human and non-humans participate in landscapes of uh, management and creation. So um, I have like no minute, I have no time left, but um, <laughs> basically what we have is that there's a number of domesticated species. Rubber was domesticated not for its rubber, but for its latex. One of the things that happens with this is that um, you get a, a shift in usages, and the logic of the uh, domestication may be obscure. The other thing is that what it seems to be a big marker in Amazonian landscape domestication and species do domestication is multiple uses. Finally, um, let me just go and say one more thing, which is uh, going from sort of a, uh, this past thing into another latex, which is Castilla. One of the things is that because we take these places to be wild and untrammeled, even though they've had a history of very complex types, you can overlook a lot of things. And one of the things that I've been working on is what's called deforestation before deforestation. And perhaps the most dramatic version of this was the uh, caucho, which is another kind of rubber. There's hevea, which is the one I was just talking about. But caucho, which has a 3,000-year domestication horizon, 
And during the rubber boom, basically how it was, how the latex was extracted was by killing it. Um, and so you had a major deforestation pulse involving something like 300 million trees taken out in a 40-year period. So that when people today sort of look at the mark, the, the carbon absorption mark on these areas, what they see is that this looks like a young area. And so there's this argument going on in journals like Science that exact that actually global warming is causing more carbon uptake. Actually, if you ex uh, 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 in these kinds of forests, in fact, what you see in these areas is that first of all, if you look at the data you see from 1980 or 1880 to 1920, you see a carbon uptick that drops after 1920, even though industrialization is going up. So what you have is sort of the end of the rubber boom and the end of this, this source of deforestation and carbon. And then the other thing is that by forgetting about the past, the fact that this is a successional story, forest is, is overlooked. So um, uh, what all of this is sort of to, to provide three, the answers to these questions. First of all, there's other cu cultures besides the European ones. And uh, they have a lot to say and also a lot to teach us about things. Second, there are different ep epistemes and sort of by looking at these, uh, one can start to reimagine categories that we um, as assume as fairly stable, such as those questions of domestication. Third, um, under uh, questions of globalization, uh, one of the things that's often lost is that there are lots of things that are globalized that you don't eat. Uh, in these things, and also that they can create the, their use and um, uh, uh, economies can create enormous environmental degradation in earlier periods that are sort of lost from view because these are places at the beginning, the ends of the earth and the beginnings of time. Thank you, Rob. Uh, if you can just, I only have a few slides. So, if you just call that up. Ew. <laughs> yeah, so Ew. there it is. I may be the only person left reading the Los Angeles Times, but there's a story from <laughs> Friday uh, about the thousand or so species of bacteria that are living upon you, and of course the microbiologists arguing that even though this seems disgusting to us somehow, we need to recognize that we couldn't really survive without it. So one fairly green piece of my current research is about how Shakespeare really already understood this and made it vivid for his audience in ways that are still valuable for ecological education. Recent scholarship has spent a lot of time attacking the illusion that we can somehow be autonomous beings, that our human identity is allowed to define itself in absolute ways and not be controlled by our environment. You hear a lot about Michel Foucault and arguments about our unconscious dependence on powers much larger than ourselves. What I want to point out through Midsummer Night's Dream, at least, is that we're also controlled by powers much smaller than ourselves, that we are interpenetrated as well as interpolated by lots of other kinds of forces, by smaller and seemingly weaker entities than ourselves, not these mighty con men, but some kind of mitochondria. <laughs> Shakespeare may have been, as he's famously called, the, the, uh, the inventor of the human but I actually think his role was a little more like a skeptical patent officer, saying, is this invention really so new and unique and self-sustaining as has been claimed for it? So what I'm talking about in Midsummer Night's Dream is a kind of prescient allegory of this view of the human being, 
with the fairies of the play in the role of microbes. Now, obviously, Shakespeare didn't know microbiology as such, but he did see the world clearly as performing itself in orders of scale, in fractal symmetries, and the play persistently blends humanity into other living creatures. So when Demetrius gets flower-juiced into love, or Bottom gets translated into an ass, and the young lovers get metamorphosed into plants and predators in the wilderness as the wildness of their own passions takes over inside them, a lot of the barriers by which humanity likes to distinguish itself from ambient nature start tumbling down. Midsummer Night's Dream, the play as a whole, denies what kind of its authority figure, Duke Theseus, proudly likes to claim. Um, or, and put it another way, Theseus likes to hide out from the fact that while we blunder along, there's a shadow world of unseen creatures around us that sorts out our mating and our feeding and our sleeping, that patches our wounds, fights off the demon death. In the mysteries of love and of the fairyland, Shakespeare is coding the world we don't know but couldn't live without. In biology, as in so many areas of early modern science, magic is a placeholder for phenomena with pending explanations. Endosymbionts inhabit ourselves in massive numbers and generate most of our energy. Hormones run a show in which we are largely puppets, making life in general and Midsummer Night's Dream in particular a Bergsonian farce of mechanicals within a vitalist comedy. Our acts of sexual selection are at once the apex of personal choice, the epitome also of our servitude to biological systems beyond our comprehension. The play, in other words, makes sexual desire itself a deeply selfish and also deeply selfless motive, a test case for the whole problem of human identity. Recent studies of brain chemistry confirm that being in love is not neatly distinct from being drugged. Everyone's upset that Demetrius is still under the influence at the end of the play, so can he really be in love with, with, uh, with Helena? But maybe that's not the issue. You get testosterone and estrogen leading to endorphins at first sight. That's Romeo and Juliet at the Capulet Ball. Then phenylethylamine releasing dopamine and norepinephrine and serotonin as love thrives. That's act two and three of the play. Oxytocin for women, vasopressin for men, sustaining the long-term bonding of marriage. That's a potentially happy ending that the play instead turns into a tragic suicide pact in Romeo and Juliet and also Pyramus and Thisbe within Midsummer Night's Dream. My point is not to reduce these emotional events to mere biochemistry. On the contrary, the point I want to make is that love involves forces and interactions and emergent phenomena so mysterious and so far beyond our rational regulation, though poignantly entangled with it, that we might as well turn the names of the compounds into the names of fairies. So where Shakespeare's comedies normally move from some kind of decadent, desiccated city out into the green world and then back into a revived city, and from constricting personal identities into confusing anonymities, loss of self, and then back into more full and free identities at the end, what I see Midsummer Night's doing, Dream doing from a green perspective is moving from a destructively narrow definition of the human self to the almost complete dissolution of humanity out in the wilds of nature to a new, more flexible and biologically inclusive definition of what it means to be a living person. Consider Duke Theseus's boast about the best-known instance, along with the horse, before Claire jumps on my case, of cross-species symbiosis, namely the dog. And this will be, I think, uh, a next slide. Domesticated livestock are obviously a problem for deep ecology advocates, since 
the animals and species would have trouble surviving liberation into the wild. And this goes back to Susanna's point about what domestication means. The idea of a perfect liberation of earthly nature from humanity is now no more realistic than the idea of earthly humanity perfectly insulated from nature. But the combination can be synergistic and even rhapsodic. This is Hippolyta. I was with Hercules and Cadmus once, when in a wood of Crete they bathed the bear with hounds of Sparta. Never did I hear such gallant chiding, for besides the groves, the skies, the fountains, every region near seem all one mutual cry. I never heard so musical a discord, such sweet thunder. And Theseus, proud of his hounds, answers, My hounds are bred out of the Spartan kind, so flued, so sanded, and their heads are hung with ears that sweep away the morning dew, crook-kneed and dew-lapped like the salian bulls, slow in pursuit, but matched in mouth like bells, each under each. There's a lurking allusion here to Theseus's father, whose name identifies him as a goat man, and who supposedly his sperm was mixed with that of Poseidon in fathering Theseus, whose fame depends on slaying the half-human minotaur and partly also on battling the half-human centaurs. So he kind of loses his floor and his ceiling in the hierarchy by which we normally identify humanity in the chain of being as a vertical entity. And the play constantly draws on Ovid's metamorphosis, which is the sort of famous wrecking ball by which all the barriers separating humanity from other living forms was destroyed in modern Western culture, drawing on ancient Western culture. Hercules, the figure mentioned first here by Hippolyta, was, of course, a demigod. Cadmus uh, was a man who was also partly a snake um, in a story Ovid tells just after telling the story of Pyramus and Thisbe. Just before the breeding drive of the young humans in this scene is recaptured by the civilized order so they can get married, You've got a slant rhyme in the yellow between bulls and bells, establishing a progression from the animal aspect of humanity to its aesthetic rarefications. The bay in the purple is somehow also audibly part of the bear it rouses. The dogs are sweeping in the green, the dews off the grasses with the dewlaps that they share with an old woman that Puck in the play talks about earlier as having these dewlaps and spilling this dewy drink into her lap. Um, and shares another kind of dews with the Thessalian bulls, who you can see in the gray, their name by sound links them to Theseus himself, and thus to the half-bull minotaur that he fought in the labyrinth. And you can feel, if you can't follow this, you're right. The point is that the whole passage builds to this wonderful crescendo, the entireness of an ecosystem of allusion and otherwise, in which everything is a mutual cry, echoes in conjunction, this vast discordia concourse that Theseus is talking about, a sweet thunder, and it was nice to have some thunder today, of all the scales of nature, each on each. Um, this is the feeling, this is the pleasure of Shakespearean texts in some ways. It's translating itself outward, and I think Shakespeare is recognizing the way it happens in nature, too. So on my next slide, you have Fisbee's elegy for Pyramus, supposedly dead, um, in the play within the play, a purely vegetable of love, the lily lips, the cherry nose, the yellow cowslip cheeks, um, his eyes were green as leeks, and so on. And this takes me to, um, just so that Liz and I are working All on right. the same kind of thing, an Archimboldo portrait also, which is, we have to acknowledge, a grotesque, right? This is not finally an ideal exactly. It's kind of in a moment of insanity. 
and we have to be selective about what parts of nature we do let into ourselves. So the whole idea of sort of hugging trees and being hugged back obviously has its limitations because you have apertures in yourself, they become paths for pathogens. They become a dreadfully yawning gate between life and death. Not long ago, cell biologists, I think this is my next slide, discovered a pair of genes in fruit flies that had to be closely linked or else the fly's heart literally would be broken. And they coded these genes as PYR and THS for Pyramus and Thisbe. In the play's closing lines, the fairies are standing on guard against genetic errors that misshape human bodies and therefore human lives. And this is my next slide. Puck says, the blots of nature's hand shall not in their issues stand. Never mole, hair, lip, nor scar, nor mark prodigious, such as are despised in nativity, shall upon their children be. And I think it's remarkable that these instances of deformity that are cited, the mole and the hair lip, explicitly associate the partial invention of other animal characteristics into the human with these kinds of crimes. So I guess my broad point is that precisely by being this nice little story about lovers and fairies in the forest on a warm summer night, this is a comedy that can get into our heads something important and something it's otherwise hard to get our heads around, namely the fact that our insularity as individuals and as a species is a destructive illusion. Some of the greatest benders of minds and shapers of history in the 20th century, <coughs> Einstein and Gandhi, and now I think some leading voices of eco-cultural studies converge on this point. What I'm talking about is something that Merleau-Ponty describes in various ways as the engaged body. Bakhtin talks about this as the grotesque as opposed to the ni nicely sealed classical body. It's what Buddhists and pantheists agree to talk about as interbeing. It's what um, Liz just showed me Donna Haraway's new book is apparently largely about, so I'm feeling very cool and up-to-date at the moment to know that this is Donna Haraway's new book. But looking back, pride may be, as Renaissance Christianity deemed it, the deadliest sin. It starts looking like a kind of inflammatory immunological disorder, mistakenly attacking essential elements and functions of our own bodies. As in the theology of grace, so in the biology of earthly life, the self that is porous may not be erased, but rather enriched. So that's just a sort of very condensed sample. I, I, I had to save my time for the answers to all the other questions because we can kind of go around, but I'm looking forward to the rest of the conversation. Uh, I think the plan is that you now all talk to each other. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I, I just wondered whether you know of the Josephine Baker um, mm -hmm. photograph with the bananas. Mm -hmm. And what is she doing in it? She's basically, it's a cabaret kind of thing. <laughs> she's, wear, she's wearing them. Yeah, yeah. That's all. Yeah. You, know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fabulous thing. Yeah, it's, you can probably just Google it, As Google Jos image and find it. Yeah. Yeah. Josephine Baker wearing bananas. <laughs> and nothing else. Yeah, nothing oh, else. Well, maybe I, I can just try to push since I'm the one who made up all these impossible fault. questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think the broad justification in some ways, I thought, for this series and for this session in particular, as you say, comparatist work has to happen. And, you know, I, within the limitations, I'm sort of just comparing past and present. I'm comparing science and literature. I'm not doing things very internationally. Uh, in terms of where the field is going, I, I, there's lots of things I want to say about it, but 
but I think it's going toward complexity. I think it's going toward acknowledgement of complexities, which these kinds of interactions are only going to teach us more about. Um, and I think it's, in certain ways, going toward comedy. And this takes off from a point that Ursula Heise was making in the meeting up at Santa Barbara. That is, that there are certain limitations that environmentalist discourse has imposed on itself by being so caught in an elegiac and tragic mode that people pretty much just kind of get depressed, and as depressed people do, get passive. And there is this other possibility, I think Shakespearean comedy is one way at it, of visiting this in an entirely different spirit. And I think people are going to start looking for other more positive ways to talk about the story of the environment, more ways that are about the sustaining of life in the sense that comedy as a genre uh, addresses that. So, um, you know, that's one start. Um, I, I would also sort of uh, think I have to, uh, there is this sort of depressing dimension to it, but many of the uh, globalized travelers and colonial uh, periods were looking at rather just depressing things. But one of the things I would also like to say is that so much of our understanding, at least of the tropics and, and tropical environments, um, was determined really by a sort of uh, rather elite set of scientific observers uh, and who might have been great on the bugs or great on the plants, but whose soci sociology was very fatuous. And uh, often they didn't speak the languages that well. So for the Amazon, the sort of, the, you know, pulling out the usual dog and pony show would be Wallace, Bates, Bruce, and Agassiz. But there were literally thousands of other people. And um, because, uh, um, because of Euclides, I have to now leap to the defense of the surveying class. And they were going all through these places and surveying. And many of the, this is a literature that's not looked at very much. But it's really, you know, it's to talk about the imperial archive. This is where they are talking, you know, these are imperial spy missions. They're documenting where the rivers are, where the mountains are, who's there, and lots of details about them. And they're not entirely an unthoughtful group of people. Um, and they're very, very interesting. So this is a group of, this is sort of a, uh, it, it happens that Euclides was one of the great writers of Brazil, but uh, many of the other ones weren't so bad either. The second thing is that there's also a huge ecclesiastic literature. And all of these things are interesting in that they were really interested in the people because they were involved in imperial battles. So as opposed to the American version of the wilderness or the Anglo-American version of going to places and seeing them empty with the virtue of since they were empty, there wouldn't be any problem claiming it. The way that many of these Mediterranean groups claimed was through the concept of uti posedes, that is, who, who, he who has keeps, you needed to have human occupation. And if you were an ecclesiastic, you wanted to have souls to save, because why would you go to some place where there weren't any people after all, if that was your, what you were supposed to be doing in your colonial enterprise? So what's very interesting about looking at these literatures as opposed to sort of the oat literature that, um, that you see recited ad infinitum is that there's this, there is a lot of this other literature that's sort of gone by the wayside, um, hasn't been looked at very, very much, and its purpose and its, its, centr its central orientation, its way of claiming these things for either church or crown was through occupation, was through habitation. And so when you look at it through these eyes, as opposed to the sort of um, 
uh, Anglophone or in some cases Francophone version of the tropics, you see uh, where, and Patricia Seed makes this argument that the way that many of these groups, many of, you know, the, the, the British and the um, Anglo-Americans claimed their terrain was by seeing it as empty. Whereas the sort of southern, the southern European um, entities, the Iberian and the ecclesiastics, claimed through occupation. So if you go into those literatures, and I have to say the Lusophone literature hasn't been looked at at all, and they were an empire upon the ocean sea, it's full of people and full of places that are, you know, described by others and other explorers as being empty. So it's a very important thing to also look at sort of ideologies of empire and, and ways of claiming in terms of how people look at environment. Yeah, I would, I would second that because um, I think, it, you know, when you're looking also at different moments in time, that also changes mm -hmm. as well. You know, if you're looking at the 16th century as opposed to the 19th century, and it has to do with the development of empire and what happens to empire over time. Um, but there also is another sort of set of sources, which I think, um, and I thought about this in terms of working on the Maghreb, is um, it's, it's sometimes very difficult to actually get at, um, get away from, from the Europeans entirely, but, you know, look at the people who are there and, you know, land use practices and how they're conceiving of their environment as well. And sometimes um, one can get at that through different, different forms of, of sources, oral histories, for example, or taking a more anthropological approach. Um, in that, agronomic studies, you know, like colonial agronomic studies are full of these kinds of things. And actually, that was one of the other things I wanted to say, which is the landscape is also intense. Mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes you can, um, you, you had these, these people going out and doing surveys, and not just doing surveys of where the rivers were, but, you know, doing sort of descriptions of what the trees were. And so not in you know, the, the things of scientific survey for botanical survey have, are elements of long colonial practice. Um, and so those are also very interesting, you, you know, if you can get brushed up on your body. But the economic plants you can pick out pretty easily. So those are other kinds of, of, of things as well. And you have to assume that there are domesticated trees or domesticated landscapes in which trees occur. And then suddenly you can seize them. Susanna, can I ask you a question, though, in the 17th century, uh, especially um, the British colonists made the argument that the land was wasted, not that it was empty, and because there wasn't stable agriculture well, changing the land, then that's what gave them the right to, to claim it. Um, well, the, the thing was waste was not, it meant no effective use, right? right. Yeah. So not just in case people are thinking of waste as equals ruin. Um, so part of it was that it was a wasteland or a desert, even though they're talking about the tropics. And that you get in some of this a conflation, but you're right, it's that the land was, since it wasn't under effective use, it had by well, rights... The type when, of agriculture that the Europeans expected it to mm -hmm. be under, because obviously it has... Said it was being very much cultivated. Mm -hmm. 
So, um, no, you're right, but it's this idea of, of, of an uninhabited landscape. And since they weren't going to do anything with it, you know, we might as well take it. Almost sounds like that got turned around on them by the diggers. So. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's, you know, if you develop that rhetoric, you've got to watch where it's going to go. With regard to France um, and the desert, of course, in the Abbe Prévost, Manon Lescaut, you know, he talks at the end, the Désert du Nouveau Monde, to New Orleans, which was not a desert. It's, it, it's again, this idea that because it's not been instrumentalized, therefore it, it's useless, so it has been, it has not been properly uh, used by humans, but also with regard to your uh, choice or your your documenting or studying Madagascar and the Maghreb as the regions that might influence France's understanding of, of nature, I would go way back to the 17th and the 18th century and the fact that the early, the Vieille Colonie, are the Caribbean islands and the ones in the Indian Ocean, Mauritius, Réunion, um, Martinique, Guadeloupe, because the travel writers and the way these islands um, um, excite the imagination in the 17th and the 18th century, to my mind, really determined a certain understanding of nature within the French context. And um, so, in no, there's the there is. Uh, I mean, Richard Grove. I mean, this pathbreaking book, Green Imperialism. He spe mm -hmm. specifically looks at the Indian Ocean, mm -hmm. and the French, um, and basically argues that early environmental ideas actually comes out of the colonial encounter, mm -hmm. and the notion that essentially there are going to be resources that are going to run out. So, yeah, I I know about that literature, mm -hmm. but the, the I mean the the challenge for me is that mm -hmm. I could you know, expand this infinitely. And, and what I'm really interested in is a particular moment, actually, both in, in um, French colonialism mm -hmm. um, and also a particular moment where you have uh, new, uh, a new kind of environmental consciousness that emerges. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I, yeah. I made but the... For example, Georges Sand, uh, the first book she publishes is called Indiana, 1834 or so, I don't remember the exact date. It's, uh, it should never been to the Indian Ocean, but it takes place in the Indian Ocean. And the word wilderness, which you mentioned, uh, in her book, um, the English version, that word is translated as wilderness in English. Mm -hmm. uh, but the French word is la savane, mm -hmm. which uh, for me also uh, denotes a moment in the literature of that particular decade, in mm -hmm. 1830s, mm -hmm. where a certain understanding of what savane or what wilderness might mean. Plus, in George Sand, of course, the nature-culture divide is, is gendered. Mm -hmm. And this issue of gender, I don't think any of you has really addressed that, would be a very, uh, I think, important topic to bring up. Because, uh, uh, in questions of hybridity, monstrosity, how the other and the self uh, are within each other, a lot of feminist literature about motherhood and the fact that the, you know, the mother and the child within, it's the other within. And there's been a lot of conceptual work done on that particular question. That, um, to this, uh, particularly since you brought up um, uh, Grove's work on green imperialism, I think his work is quite useful for me because he situates particular places um, in a dialogue with other places. So, and, I, and what I like about his work, and this is something that I see, um, I think a lot of environmental study shifting towards, is both thinking through what ha what is happening in a local space, but how is other kind of global forces, how is that already kind of being constituted by global forces. And his work on islands, um, because they're contained spaces, right? I mean, that's that's basically the, the, the basis of his argument, is that because they're contained, 
Europeans knew that the deforestation process had happened, right? Columbus noticing that, that, that once they started deforesting the Canaries, then you didn't have rainfall, right? And so these, this kind of recognition of empire, but also bounded space, ideas of bounded space, and then how they became the substitutes for other ones, right? So the ways that, that the, the, you know, the, the um, crops that they grew out in the Caribbean, they would transfer out to Mauritius, you know, and the botanical gardens there, and then transfer out to Tahiti, which is why I give the pineapple and Caribbean <laughs> origin, <laughs> because it, it was, this is, you know, it was through the botanical gardens in, um, in the Caribbean, um, including the Haitian, there was a mm -hmm. huge, uh, late uh, 1700s uh, Royal Society, right, that was doing a lot of uh, transporting from Haiti into other areas, of, of other island colonies as well. Well, also into the continental things, because French Guiana also had an extremely developed, it was where coffee was first introduced into the New World um, in its formal mode, um, in, into French Guiana, and when the Brazilians overtook, invaded French Guiana, they basically took the collections and the botanists that were taking care of them, and took them down to Rio de Janeiro. So the origin, really, of the Rio de Janeiro Botanical Garden is basically transposing the French model as, and at the plants and the people. Usually, you don't sort of expect the whole thing to go. Um, taking them down and installing them in Rio de Janeiro and in Benin. So one of the things, I mean, there's that wonderful book by Brockaway about um, the, the working out of, of these, um, of these uh, flows. But um, one of the things I think that gets lost is that there were a lot of lesser ones. I mean, you sort of have a few big ones that people talk about, but there were really other ones that were quite instrumental and that were basically uh, developing these. Um, the other thing is that um, people like Huntington here and um, uh, uh, other magnates of various kinds, bought a lot of land in Central America and even in, in, in Venezuela with the idea of getting their stuff in. So there were state-run, uh, you know, sort of an, em an empire of botany, if you will. But there were also entrepreneurs who had their own, you know, um, ideas of tycoons of botany, if you will, and were sort of setting up things and experimenting things with, with their own groups, and this is what the Huntington was with the idea of creating their own private stocks that would be would outperform the crappy stuff that had been sent to Q and then sent to Ceylon. So that's another thing that I think hasn't really been looked at very much and it's extremely interesting. And you know, for Huntington the stuff is right here. And also the 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 gardens and stuff were in Santa Barbara. I don't know if they still exist anymore, but they were there here and in um, Trial places in in central in uh, in in lower Mexico in Veracruz. So there's a lot of things about the movement of these things, which is that there's this we sort of follow the formal movements, and that there's now been a lot of really good attention to these other these other things. But there's also this entrepreneurial class that's moving stuff very explicitly and and quite experimental about it as well. Can I ask about one of the larger concerns? For me, I've been feeling that there's at least a voice out there, though it hasn't actually been expressed in this room, that says that this is all fine what we're doing, but it's not sufficiently activist. Mm -hmm. That nothing has been said here is going to happen, going to change anything fast enough to save us from environmental catastrophe. And so 
one of the challenges I don't, you know, maybe you don't run into it with your work because several of you you do several things that are pretty politically inflected. But I've gotten a number of comments and reviews that say, well, this is fine, but it's not eco-criticism because it does not lead to a program of political change toward resolving our contemporary environmental crises. So I think there is at least lurking within the fields of eco-cultural studies some assumption that there's a tension between presentism, activism, whatever you want to call it, and traditional scholarship. And I don't know if, if you feel the pressure well, of that and how you address it. Well, I mean, there's been, been a big debate in terms of environmental, the environmental history field in this way. And actually, there's been a kind of big divide, I mean, among historians who say, I don't think that that's actually our, our necessarily our mission um, to put this necessarily, I mean, people can take this and take it somewhere, but that, you know, we're doing work. We're trying to really uncover these things. And then others who really say that, you know, this is, this is a political project. And, I mean, where I stand on it is, is probably the former. Um, and I think it's, it's a choice and, and a conscious choice probably that people have to make. I don't know. Do you feel that there's been a shift? Um, I mean, in like, who would you say is more of an activist bent in terms of their scholarship? Are there particular figures in history that... Well, um, you know, I'm thinking, um, for example, William Cronin. I mean, one of the sort of founding figures in the field of environmental history, you know, has explicitly said, you know, that actually the origins of this field is in a, a certain form of activism. And, you know, he basically says that, you know, this is a, a field that has a, he actually uses the term moral purpose. Mm -hmm. And, um, in fact, a lot of people working in American environmental history really take that position. Mm -hmm. I think, um, People working in other parts of the world haven't so much. So, yeah. It's interesting you raise this question. I mean, for me, what I've been thinking through the past few weeks are these questions about genealogy of the field, particularly given the conference that we just went to in Santa Barbara, and about the way that there's been a particular um, American cast to the way environmental um, scholarship is discussed. And, and it's increasingly being depicted in a way that the William Cronin or the, there's a particular kind of um, Western uh, U.S. kind of yeah. frontier wilderness kind of discourse that becomes a stand-in for what environmental thought is. And through this class that uh, uh, we're doing on post-colonial environments, we've been digging through and thinking about how there's been this larger history here. Not only is it global, but also it eclipses a lot of the kind of activist work that's already been done in the U.S., such as, you know, labor rights works and, you know, in terms of getting, um, you know, work at, working against asbestos and, you know, buildings to um, the radium dial painters and, you know, so there actually is simultaneously this other history. Um, and what I'm seeing is that as there's a kind of rise in environmental scrutiny, I'm seeing more um, kind of consolidation in terms of what the past has been, uh, in terms of scholarly um, depictions, that I don't think is necessarily representative. I think that's been a really interesting shift that I've seen very recently in this kind of eco-critical turn. Um, I don't know if you're seeing that the same way in, in history, but I certainly see it in literature. Well, in, in another realm, uh, which is the realm of sort of uh, conservation politics in the tropics, um, essentially what you see now is a, an emergence of the use of history as a means of for social movements to make claims to natural resources. And they really do, they are very explicit about using history in the same way that, you know, the Baron of Rio Branco sat and went through the maps and, you know, they, they'll go through the colonial descriptions, they'll go through the maps, the 
you know, the, the Guarayos were here at this, you know, in 1770, so-and-so says he saw the Guarayos. And so it starts to be a way to make claims to substantial areas. In the case of the rubber tappers, they said, well, you know, these were Kodokasans. They had names. They were registered. These were territories. They're, you know, they're, they're, the owners went bankrupt ages ago, and we are, you know, the community that lives on San Luis de Rimaso, and we want this to be an extractive reserve, and our claims are made on historical grounds and environmental grounds as well. So in a certain sense, what you have in this is the use of um, what is perhaps normally seen as uh, the ethnographic and historical survey work actually feeding into political movements um, in which conservation is conceived of as taking place in an inhabited world, what they call socioambientalismo, um, the socio-environmentalism versus the wilderness versus the tame. Again, the other thing I would say, too, is to answer you, is that the question of different epistemes is really important now, because if we're just going to stay with economism and, you know, certain forms of planning, if I may be self-critical, um, <laughs> that we are doomed. So one of the things is that the episteme about what is what people's relationship to nature is and what is nature, as you pointed out so well in your talk, um, really has to change. So that epistemic shift has to go on through uh, through various kinds of uh, critical labors in history and so on. And I don't, you know, in 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 places in the in the tropics, for example, and so we stay in our colonial story. Um, these questions of, about claim and history are the substance of the politics now. It's the substance of the political ecology. It's not, it's not some add-on. And, you know, and, and the quality, and, and it was exactly how the nations were formed there anyway, through looking at history, looking at language. It was, you know, we went out there and our caboclos, you know, claim this for, and foreigners who come don't change us, we change them. So it also starts to have an interesting, looking at these questions of environment and colonialism, start to have a very important impact in understanding nation formation in the tropics, which has also been sort of, I mean, Grove goes into it to some degree, but, you know, it's a nation under nature, you know, and we have some of this for the U.S., but how this was played out in the tropics has sort of gotten, hasn't been so much analyzed. It's a great irony, it seems. I mean, a lot of you have spoken about, it seems like the work of this, this field generalized is to break down boundaries and point out connections that people might not have realized and in some sense, you know, make the world more global and interconnected, but it sounds like the history is also being used to stake sort of nationalists, you know, to reify boundaries. Nationalist yeah. and, and, uh, and, and sort of distributional claims. Yeah, yeah. So in some sense, the, the, the scholarship, the goals of the scholars probably are not those. Um, no, but know? most of the, well, yeah. um, a lot of the stuff was done in the 19th century in, yeah. term, I mean, yeah. in terms of the nation formation claims. But in terms of forming regional politics, it certainly is active now. It's, and whether some of the historians are involved in this, the people who do the work on sort of negritude and slave refugee, refugees and stuff, and use 
you know, work with social movements. So they actually do have an intentionality, but they are, you know, looking at the 19th and 18th century documents and the writing about it and the surveys about it. So they're using all sorts of different stuff. I think also in, you know, in these colonial contexts as well, um, something that, you know, I think really needs to be looked at, which is what I was looking at in Algeria, is also the way in which, you know, a certain kind of um, environmentalism um, was used to displace people. Mm -hmm. and, and that, um, you know, I, I think is probably played out in a number of other contexts, um, having to do with different kinds of resources, of course. And it happened, just happened to be that it was the French focused on forests and the idea of deforestation. And, um, and that's, you know, I think it's, you know, kind of linked to um, historical understandings of the environment as well. Well, you know, Nancy Pelusa, who's a sociologist, talks about this a lot in the South Asian case, the sort of rise of political force and how states were using forests historically both to um, claim spaces and also as, you know, emergencies, to control emergencies and insurgencies as well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there, there, there really is that. But, um, in fact, in the social movements in Brazil and in other parts of Latin America, in fact, it's to avoid displacement that these historical cultural arguments mm -hmm. are one of the greatest land grabs in the 19th century and early 20th century was the creation of conservation areas, mm -hmm. national forests, and so on. And history is being used very, very actively, not, not just in the tropics, but in developing countries in particular, in rethinking of natural resource policies. So a lot of the history is going back to say, my bread, and saying, well, what really was happening? And using environmental history not just in terms of social history, but uh, the kind of discussions Susanna's having about the soils and the soil formations, and really tracing what did happen to the environment, and you know, excavating the fact that probably in the Maghreb we're not talking about environmental degradation, but that, his, that, that narrative of the degradation is by no means unique to France. And the, British, uh, the, the British use it also in South Asia, the, uh, the, the forest state in India, in what is now Sri Lanka, it's all based on the same assumption that a lot of people could not be trusted with protecting the environment. Now, history is very consciously being used now. Uh, the, the World Forestry Congress five years ago, there was a very large activist group of people who were presenting evidence that this narrative is incorrect and that on that basis, policies should be changed in terms of access to natural resources, to forests, and so on. And so, that this activism is not just in terms of staking on territory, but also being used very actively in terms of what people, particularly rural people, are allowed to do on the land. And, so, and it's not just in the tropics, it's very much in the developing countries. You'll find it in China, you'll find it uh, in many parts of Latin America that are not in the tropics. Very active. Well, and also that question of identity starts to be very important too, you know, which is. And this has implications also in sort of broader things, which is if you're, uh, right now, if you can make your land claims on the basis of identity, then you sort of stop being a peasant. So in a certain sense, this is the end of the peasantry and the sort of the rise of ethnicity 
as the means of claim. So instead of having an interlocutor, the state be the interlocutor, you sort of have these social movements using historical arguments and logics to shape who people are. It's quite interesting. With regard to that, then, is, is the IK movement, the indigenous knowledge movement, is this something that, uh, for your area in particular, would be in dialogue with environmentalism? I'm talking about somebody like Buenaventura, Santos de Souza, or de Souza Santos, you know who? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's very variable, um, is the first thing I would say, because some of this is, um, first of all, there's there's been this sort of appropriate development kind, you know, an indigenous development that is supposedly based on, you know, a, a hybridization of indigenous knowledge and, and other things. The other thing is using indigenous practices as a way, as a input into modernization, and that you could see as sort of the CG, CG system, CG. CGAIR, the Consultative Group on International <laughs> Agriculture Research, um, who basically look at these things and then try to modernize, you know, modernize them in the Latour sense, you know, and make them so that you could do them everywhere. Um, and then there's, um, you know, the, the groups that always argue that, well, we kept, and this is particularly true of Quilombos, we kept our forests intact because if we people knew where we were, they would come and hunt us out. So we know how to manage forests because we've had to, and they've been our rampart and our and our mantle. Um, so there, there's that kind of approach too. I think the thing about uh, the indigenous knowledge stuff is that it, the way you know you go from everything to from ayahuasca cults, you know, and all of this, you know, that that the IK thing goes from like hyper new age into you know, the most uh, conventional of modernist um, uh, ad adapters. So it's sort of, I tend to look at the IK thing as sort of on a case-specific situation rather than, than a sort of conflated thing. But it's used a lot in these identity arguments. We know how to manage for us, and you don't. And so you get a very specific area related to indigenous knowledge is in uh, environmental and uh, indigenous rights activism with relation to WTL and intellectual property rights. And in very practical terms, um, if indigenous knowledge and indigenous use is documented, then it can't be patented under WTL rules. And in India, there have been uh, NGO groups that have gone actively documenting the use of varieties of rice turmeric, medicinal plants, and so on, in order to avoid those products then being patented internationally. So there's a very close and very direct connection there between indigenous knowledge, between environmental activism, between some of the indigenous rights movements. I mean, what's interesting about that is that the, the idea of environmentalism as a stewardship of nature then breaks down as a romantic uh, effort to protect something that, uh, in fact, should be adapting to human needs? Uh. Well, I think it's a, one of those things that starts to be part of the strategic essentialisms. Mm -hmm. You know, that it's a, it's a, useful, it's a useful thing mm -hmm. but um, in, in, in political battles. But I think indigenous knowledge, is, as I was talking in my class today, it's like, likes to suck things up. It's not, it's not static at all. It's a, you know, this is a much more dynamic. One more comment, and then we should probably be informal. Well, 
I've already asked a question, so if somebody else has, feel free to use it. Oh, okay. Do you want? Oh no, go ahead. Oh. One thing that I, I think that social movements, uh, even beyond environmentalism and indigenous knowledge, are trying using very consciously using history for is trying to break uh, the cycle of what they consider imperialism. So all over South America, they use the idea that 500 years is enough. And rather than looking to the, they look to the nation state to protect them from the predatory nature of what, what they consider the predatory nature of capitalism. And it failed them from the late 70s onward. And so then they're looking for to organize at an international level, but also to uh, try and get control of local autonomy, have much more local autonomy and control that. And that's, uh, and they, as all of you have already noted, this is a very much looking back to, uh, back into history. To, to Thank you to our speakers, and let's Thank have you some wine. Thank you to everybody here. Okay. <laughs>